We are in this season of Advent, and um, let's just pause for a moment and um, remember what this is about, because Advent is from a Latin word that talks about, it's the sense of coming and uh, in our sense of waiting, that this is a season where we celebrate that Jesus came, but as his people, we also, we use this season to pause and consider that he's coming again that this isn't, this isn't all there is. And this waiting thing uh, that we do once a year, we do it intentionally because we're not good at waiting. It's not a part of the things that we like to incorporate in our lives. We don't practice the discipline of waiting. What are you doing today? Well, I'm going to the gym, then I'm gonna practice waiting. Really? What? No, we, we try to navigate everything that keeps us from waiting. You know, we order our food online so it's ready when we get there, all the things that we do. But you know, there's a, there's a, there's a part of waiting that's kind of sweet. Like when you're waiting for something and the waiting actually builds the sweetness of it. I remember in 2002, the Harry Potter uh, world had blown up by the books, but then uh, the first movie came out and it was like, unbelievable, like just the world went crazy about it. So when the second one came out in 2002, everybody was just waiting. And I remember my kids coming to me and going, Hey dad, we've got to go to the midnight showing. We cannot wait for 12 hours for the next day. So all our friends have gotten together and we want you to take us. And I'm like, okay, all right. And we get there and it's like midnight, you know, cause that's what, that's when they show a midnight showing. Is it, believe it or not. And so we're in line and everybody, you know, kids are dressed up like Harry Potter and, you know, they're just, you know, they got their wands and stuff. And there's just the energy in the line is adding to the excitement of the event so that when you come into the theater and you're sitting down and I'm wanting to go to sleep, but the room is just, you know, on fire with electricity. And then when the, the show starts, everybody's cheering. That's not what Advent is. That's not what I'm talking about. That's a waiting that adds to the anticipation that makes it even better. Advent, it's a little different. Advent is where, where we're waiting, and in the waiting, we're getting in touch with the part of us that is groaning for the waiting. We're getting in, in touch with that part of us that we need Jesus to come again. That, that we're longing in our brokenness for this Jesus to come and make all things new. So we've been studying um, the women of Advent to try to help you and me kind of give space in our lives to participate in Advent. And this women of Advent, um, it's not something we made up. If you go to Matthew chapter one, and Matthew's about to tell about the birth of Jesus uh, and Bethlehem and, you know, the wise men, the whole shoot. Before he does any of that, he goes into the family tree of Jesus. He gives us his genealogy. And what sets this genealogy apart from others in scripture is it's the only one that actually lists women in it. And the women that he mentions, like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and others, um, these are interesting women. And when we study these women that are a part of the family tree, it helps us understand, hopefully, and helps us worship in this Advent season. You with me? All right. 
You know, we're a little down in this room today because we had the kids show. Uh, I call it show. It's the kid worship. I shouldn't call it a show. Uh, at the nine o'clock, it was chaos in here. And uh, so a lot of folks that normally worship here came to the nine o'clock. So y'all are going to have to kind of wake up now. Come on, get a little energy going. Got to fill the room up, right? You know, last week we, uh, we talked about one of the women in this genealogy. Her name was Rahab. And she was a prostitute, and she was a prostitute in the city of Jericho. And um, I just want us to grasp for a moment that the Jesus that you worship, the second member of the Trinity, God became flesh, the one who created the world and all the stars in the heaven, who decided to create his own family tree, put a prostitute in his family tree. Let's just pause. Like, Jesus that you worship literally would say his great, 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 great grandmother was a prostitute. Hmm. What's funny about that is that it's not like we have to dig very hard to actually find that out. It's not like that uncle you have that nobody wants to talk about at Christmas, you know, that went up north somewhere and no one's heard from for a year, but mom kind of knows the story, but she doesn't talk about it. Like, that's not what we're talking about here. This isn't hidden. It's like right out, like she's called Rahab the prostitute. In fact, we'll talk about it in a minute, but her whole life, she was known as Rahab the prostitute. Like we're talking 3000 years later, we're still calling her Rahab the prostitute. That's in Jesus' line. And is it possible that Jesus is trying to kick over our idea of what being uh, spiritual is? Is it possible that he's trying to kick over this table that we call going to church, getting dressed up and pretending to be better than we really are by displaying right there in his own family tree brokenness? Maybe give us hope. So let's go to the next lady in the line. And this is the story of a woman named Ruth. And there's a whole book in the Old Testament um, called Ruth because the book is about Ruth. And uh, it's four chapters long, and we don't have time to take the whole book of Ruth apart. But remember, what we're doing is we're studying this from the perspective of why, what are the clues here that God has intentionally put Ruth in Jesus's family tree to help me better understand how to enter into this season of Advent? So if you open the book of Ruth, if you, I encourage you to go read it. It'll probably take about 20 minutes to read it. But it starts with a very familiar story. It's a story of love. It's the story of two people that are starting their lives together. There's Elimelech. What a name, right? Elimelech. And he marries a woman named Naomi. And um, they get married and kind of they're like you and me. They start living their lives together and they have dreams and they have hopes and they get up in the morning and they do their jobs. I'm sure that there were Arguments they would have, Eliminate probably left his robe laying around, you know, and his shepherd's headdress, whatever they wore back then, you know. He probably had a, a cane he had, you know. Can you never put this back where it belonged? I'm sure they had those kind of arguments, but all in all, the picture that we have here is here's two people that are kind of content to be married with one another, so much so that they said, hey, let's build a family. And they have two boys, uh, Malon and Kilion. Yeah, that's what they named them, Malon and Kilion. And I was thinking about this the other day. I'm sure when they were in junior high, all their friends called them the On Brothers. Okay. Uh, you probably went to a different junior high. You probably went to a junior high as everybody was sweet and kind to you. 
So the brothers, you know, they're just, they're just creating a house. I mean, Naomi was the, she ran this household of all boys. And if you were not raised in a house of all boys, it's hard for you to understand the certain slice of chaos that is to have a house of nothing but boys. But I mean, come on, life is going well. They've scripted it out. Like they, they probably didn't tell each other the script. Like you don't tell yourself, here's the script that I have for my life. But they had some kind of sense of what a good life would be. And they were kind of laboring toward that and things are going well until a famine hit. Right there in the first couple of verses of Ruth, we're told that a famine hit. And if, if you don't know what a famine does, if you've never been where there's a famine is, like there's a famine right now hitting Zimbabwe, and uh, millions of people are in danger there now. Because what famine does is it brings death to everything. Famine brings death to the crops, which also brings death to the livestock. And in modern terms, if, if that doesn't get you... Famine brings death to your bank account. It brings death to your dreams of the future. It brings death to your plans. Everything that you thought you had scripted into your life, when famine shows up, and you can almost hear Naomi going, oh, this is not what we planned on. This is not what we had planned. So Elimelech, comes to Naomi and he goes, hey, I got this brilliant idea. Let's move. Let's pack up our family. Let's take the on brothers and let's hit the road. And you can almost hear Naomi going, whoa, 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 time out, time out, time out. Like, you want me to leave my mom and my dad? You want me to leave my brothers and my sisters? Like, I grew up here. We've never let, left. We're in Bethlehem. Like, we're in Bethlehem. Like, that's got to be the it city in the Bible, right? And come on, has any of you ever read the Jesus story? Bethlehem's pretty central to the story, but they're in Bethlehem. It's a small community. They probably know everybody. Everybody knows them. And Naomi's looking at Elimelech and goes, really, you want us to leave all of this? I'd never even imagined that I would travel outside of this, much less move away from all of it. And where, oh, where do you, dear Elimelech, want to move to? And he goes, Moab. I can almost hear Naomi going, have you lost your mind? Like, are you crazy? Let me tell you, um, you probably don't know the history of Moab. Uh, Moab, uh, if you've not read the Bible, just prepare yourself. The Bible has a lot of dark stories in it. And I mean, just crazy stories. And if you've never read the Bible, let me tell you a crazy story. There was a man named Lot and him and his family lived in a city that God decided he was going to destroy. And he said, I'm going to save you, but you need to leave the city and don't look back. Just look forward. What I'm doing back there, that's my business. You keep going forward. But his wife turned around to see what God was going to do with her beloved city. And what happened to her? Does anybody know? If you didn't hear what everybody just said, God turned her to a, to what? A pillar of salt. I, can we just stop? Like, wow, we're stopping a lot. Prostitutes, pillars of salt. Like, yeah, Merry Christmas. All right. Well, here's the dark story. So Lot is left as a widower with his two daughters. And his two daughters are saying, our whole world just got destroyed. And our chances for a future and a hope are just gone. And the only hope we had was that we were going to have children one day. 
So they decided what they were going to do was they were going to get their daddy drunk. And daddy would give them children. That's dark. Incestuous. And the oldest got pregnant. And you know what she named her son? Moab. That's where the Moabites came from. What, from that situation. And Naomi is looking at Elimelech and going, seriously, you want us to move there? You want us to go live with those people? They were a stench in the nostril of a true Israelite. And Elimelech goes, yeah, let's go. Naomi, you can imagine, she's going, this is not what I planned. This wasn't in the script. This isn't at all what I was hoping for. Well, in verse three in the book of Ruth, verse three, Elimelech dies. They're in a foreign land now, and he dies. We don't know what happened. We just know that Naomi is left alone now with her two sons to figure out how to make life work in Moab. So she helps her son, the On brothers, find wives, and they, they marry Orpha and Ruth. And for about 10 years, they work to try to chisel a life out in Moab. Uh, they try to have kids, but neither brother can have any kids with their wives. And then something tragic happened. Both the boys die. They're both dead. And you can almost hear everyone now in the story going, this is not what I planned. And you know, let's just pause for a moment because like we can relate to that. Because if you don't already know this, let me just break the news. Life is not going to turn out like you planned. Amen. I mean, it's sad, but it's true because life rarely works out the way we plan. Like some of you are single right now and you didn't plan on being single at this point in your life. This isn't what you put in the script. Some of you are married right now and you wished you were single because your marriage isn't being told the way you thought it was going to be told out. Like you don't know how to manage the chaos in your own marriage. And you didn't expect that. Some of you in the workplace, you have jobs that you weren't planning on being in this position at this stage in your life. Or some of you thought, you're, you thought you would be more in the position that you're in than you are right now. Some of you are looking at your finances and saying, wow, I didn't plan to have this little or this much. Like This isn't always working out like that plan. Do you know that there are people in this room, and I say this with grace and just complete, absolute... I just want to hug you and kiss you. But there are people in this room that struggle with addictions. And there are people in this room that are addicts that aren't struggling with it at all. We love you. But I can promise you this. There wasn't a kid on this stage this morning in the nine o'clock service that when they walked out of here, they say, I hope when I get older, I have an addiction. Nobody plans that. That's not something we write into our script. That's not something that we had made room for. Some of you... You look at your life and you go, I didn't write the script of me not having any friends at this stage of my life. It wasn't my plan that I wouldn't have anybody in my life that seemed to really care that I'm here or I'm not here. Some of you are struggling with your health and you're thinking, I didn't plan on not being healthy at this stage of my life. This was not what I had hoped for. Some of you, and I'm just, again, I embrace you, but some of you are... If you're honest with yourself, you would say, I did not plan at getting in this point in my life and not being happy. 
I don't want to struggle with depression. I don't want to struggle with debilitating anxieties. I don't want to struggle with why does it feel like everybody else seems to have something that I don't have. I don't want to struggle with the fact that when Christmas is coming, I don't even want to be there for Christmas. I'd love it if we could just fast forward and get straight to January. Some of you have kids and you didn't plan on your kids not being healthy. You didn't plan on them not being smart or happy. You didn't plan on them not being, not being obedient. I could have told you that. It's not in the script. Do you know that five years ago, my oldest son at the age of 25 died? I didn't plan on that. Do you know what I planned? I planned on celebrating his birthday in two weeks and seeing his kids up on this stage at the nine o'clock service. That was my plan. I had a good friend of mine who called me and he had lost his son when his son was in high school. And I just remember him calling me and saying, Hey brother, welcome to the fraternity that nobody wants to be a part of the fraternity of men who have lost their sons. I didn't plan for that. I didn't want that into my script. Are you kidding me? But it seems like life has this way of just coming in and changing everything. Even when things go great, sometimes the underbelly of the things that are going great don't seem to be what we want. One of my good friends who passed away a couple of years ago, his story is, is just a rags to riches story. He started out mucking stalls in Kentucky and eventually got enough money to buy his own horse. And he started to breed this horse, which led to another horse that made some money. And he began to build on that, grow on that to where he could finally start his own farm where he's bred racing horses. And his dream one day was to breed a champion. And then it came, his horse won the Kentucky Derby. And I remember asking Lee and he was telling me the story because I loved hearing Lee tell stories. And I said, so what was that like for you when that horse crossed the finish line and you're standing down there and they got the roses over the neck of the horse and you got the trophy and you realize everything you had worked for as a poor kid that brought you to this moment, now you've got it. And Lee said, you know what? That was the loneliest day of my life. I said, what are you talking about, man? You got it. You got the cup everybody's running after and you got your hands on it. He said, you know, it was lonely because I finally got everything I wanted and realized it didn't change anything that mattered. That led him on a journey to become a believer. It changed his life. Well, Merry Christmas, huh? Well, hang on, because <clears throat> it gets worse. So Naomi, <laughs> I know. <laughs> wow. So Naomi, she decides, I'm going back to Bethlehem. And the daughter-in-laws, Orpha and Ruth, are like, uh, we're going to go with you. You know, and... Uh, she goes, no, you really don't have to do that. And Orpha goes, thank God. And she leaves. <laughs> Let me tell you why she would say that. Because Naomi was so deep in her grief that she literally, literally uh, changed her name. She changed her name to Mara. Mara means bitterness. L let me tell you, Naomi is one of my heroes in scripture because Naomi refused to avoid her grief. 
She absolutely refused. She, she refused to walk around it. She refused to be polite about it. She refused to not make awkward situations for other people. She put it right out there and said, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me bitterness. Wow. Are you serious? Wow. Don't invite her to the party, right? Like, ooh. But she was showing us something that's true about this Advent and this waiting is that grief is the acknowledgement of the pain of life. And, and grief comes in every time I feel pain. And every time there's change in my life, there is pain in life. And trust me, you're going to experience a lot of change in your life, which means you're going to experience a lot of pain in your life. And pain, well, hey, it's pain. Pain doesn't mean something's wrong. It's just pain. And you're either going to choose to look at that pain and embrace it as a part of the fullness of your life, or you're going to choose to shut it up in the closet of your house and put a lock on it and never let it out. In fact, some of us are so afraid of grieving. Some of us are so afraid of seeing the pain that we start to tell lies to ourselves. We lie to ourselves. Let me tell you some of the lies. One of the lies is, if I let myself feel sadness or pain, it will only make it worse. One of the lies we say to ourselves, if I let myself acknowledge my grief, I'll never be able to function again. It will engulf me. This is one of my favorite lies. I don't have time to be sad. Or how about this one? I need to think positively and not dwell on the bad. Come on. Or maybe this lie, the pain from my grief will be so painful, I will not sustain under it. And I love this one. I have no right to feel pain because look at everybody else and how much they're hurting. So we compare ourselves with other people and we shame our pain and we shame our need to grieve so we never walk into it. Because, hey, Randy lost a son. Like, that's real pain. I haven't felt that kind of pain. And so you don't give value to your pain. Good buddy of mine, um, he always reminds me that our lives are like the old garage doors. You know, if you have a garage door now, it has panels to it. You know, and when it goes up, it goes, all these compartments to it. And he says, that's not like our hearts at all. Our hearts are like the old garage doors that were just one door. And when they went up, they were either open or closed. There was no halfway, you know? And he would constantly remind me, brother, you cannot numb just one part of your heart. If you numb one part of your heart, you're going to numb all of your heart because your heart is either open or closed. When I know that, then I begin to understand that grief is a gift from the Lord. That grieving well, this is the words of Chip Dodd, grieving well sets us free to process change, to keep, to keep up with life, not recoil from it. Grief lets us come to acceptance, the courage to keep on living and loving in face of, of inevitable change. It brings us to hoping again after loss, risking again after a disappointment, reaching again after a discouragement, attaching again after a death of any kind, and loving again while knowing that pain will follow, all of which will put us in a position again of change. Such is life this side of heaven. As Samuel Beckett would say, you're on earth and there's no cure for that. 
So something happened in the midst of this world of, I didn't plan for this, and this world of grief. In walks Ruth. And Ruth does something remarkable where Ofa said, hey, I'm out of here. Ruth doubled down and she said, no, in the midst of this crazy life story, in the midst of your pain, Mara, I'm going to bring in hope. Listen to what she says to, to Mara. Do not argue with me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I'll go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. You hear what she's doing? She's going, I don't know how the rest of this story is going to play out. But let me tell you this, because I love you and I care about you. I am going to go where you go. And if you fall down dead, I will stay right there and I will die with you. So they go back to Bethlehem. And they get back to Bethlehem. Um, we don't have time to talk about this arduous journey of two women alone traveling for 10 days from Moab to around the Dead Sea all the way back over to Bethlehem. Let's say this, that, that is a difficult, dangerous journey. And they get to Bethlehem and there's no parades. There's no people saying, hey, you're finally home. You know, They have no place to stay. They have no money. They have no food. They're trying to figure out how are we going to live today? Like poverty has set in and the ideas of, of hopes for tomorrow are slim if none. So what does Ruth do? I'm going to go beg. She literally in that time and that age, she is the one standing at the corner with the sign that says out of luck, anything will help. And so she goes out to the fields because they're harvesting and she starts following, following behind the harvesters and she's just trying to pick up whatever they're leaving behind, just enough to where she could put in a sack and she could take home so her and Naomi could eat that night. And in walks Boaz. Now, if you don't know this story, the field that she's in is owned by a guy named Boaz. What a name, right? And uh, Boaz, scripture tells us that this is a man of noble character. It calls him that. that like, wouldn't you love for God to write a story and write about you and go, you're a man of noble character, unless, of course, you're a woman of noble character, which Ruth was as well, which we find later in the story. But Boaz, is a, he's this, he's just, you know, man, he's, he's straight up dude. And he sees Ruth out in the field. And uh, before I tell you about the compassion that he takes on this woman, who is literally begging and living hand to mouth and has no place to put her head at night. Let me tell you a little bit more about Boaz. Boaz has a mom that maybe you've heard of before. Rahab, the prostitute. That's Boaz's mom. This is a woman who ran a brothel in Jericho and she held a position of power in that city to where even the king came to her when he was looking for the spies. I mean, this is a strong woman who now gave all that up to marry this dude who was an Israelite and start a new life where she was trusting in God and raising a boy named Boaz. And what do you think it's like being raised by a mama like that? <clears throat> I'm telling you, I, I would love to be in that house when Boaz comes home and says, you know, there was this foreign woman from, she's a Moabite, a Moabite in my field begging today. And you can almost imagine Rahab going, mm, wait a minute. 
Wait just a minute. You're telling me she's a foreign woman in need on her own. You will take care of that woman. Like, you know, I mean, seriously, because that's what Rahab was. Rahab was a foreign woman. Do you realize that in the line of Jesus, it's not all these pure, pristine Jewish people. It's a mixed tree. Jesus was a mixed race individual. He had Moabite blood in his life. He had Jericho blood, Canaanite blood. Like, and this man, Moab, this man Boaz, he's a hero of a woman who's become comfortable with the fact that her whole life, and according to all of history, she is known as Rahab the prostitute. Have you ever experienced grace to such a degree in your life that has changed your life? Have you met somebody like that? Have you ever met somebody who grace has so kissed them that they're not ashamed of their past anymore? In fact, their past is actually a display of God's glory. And even when they talk about their past, they're not trying to hide it or cover it up. They're actually putting it on full display because it reveals the depth in which the grace that they've experienced. Have you ever met somebody like that? It may be you, because you've definitely experienced that kind of grace. But Rahab was like, yeah, I used to be that. You kidding me? Boaz, you better get over yourself and be a man of noble character. So Boaz walks into the situation. Boy, I wish we had time to do this justice, but let me tell you what he does. He becomes Ruth's kinsman redeemer. Now, what that means is the law of the land of that time, if a man had a wife and the man died and he had a relative who could come in and take her as his wife, then he would take her, he would redeem her back into the family. And if they had children, those children would be heir to the husband that had died so that his name could continue. So when the husband took the wife, he wasn't just redeeming her. He was also redeeming the name of his brother or his or his cousin, or someone, so that that name could continue to live. He was redeeming more than just her. But there's something funny about this law, because there were certain things that would nullify it. Meaning that if you did this, that means nobody in the family has any responsibility whatsoever to bring about redemption. And one of those is, if you move out of country, uh-oh, and if you die out of country, Elimelech, when he died out of country, he forfeited all his wife's rights to be redeemed. All of them. So when Naomi and Ruth are coming back to Bethlehem, they weren't coming back with any legal claims. All they were doing was coming back home as people whose life had not worked out like they planned, full of grief and hoping that God would have mercy on them. So when we hear that Boaz became the kinsman redeemer, it wasn't because he was bound by law. It's because he chose to be that. And when he took Ruth, he took her as his wife. He also, he had to pay the price, the redeemer's price. He had to buy all of Naomi's property that got sold to other people so he could redeem the estate of Elimelech when he forfeited it and he went to Moab. So Boaz had to redeem all that at great cost. And then he brought Ruth into his home and made her his wife. He rescued her from poverty. She wasn't begging anymore. He gave her a new name. He gave her a home. He gave her a future. You know, he even gave her hope. In Ruth chapter four, it says, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, not Mara. Well, what, what? 
Naomi. They're saying to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher to your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. Naomi helped raise that boy. And the women of the neighborhood gave that boy a name. A son has been given to Naomi. I wish we had time to unpack that. He didn't just redeem Ruth. He redeemed Naomi. And they named him Obed. Obed. He was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David. King David. He was the great-great-grandfather of Jesus. This is the Christmas story. Isn't it? Because we have a Boaz. We have a better Boaz. Jesus came to rescue us. This is what Christmas is about. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus declared his mission to you. He said, the Lord, the spirit of the Lord is on me to proclaim good news to the poor. We are like Ruth. He says, he sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. We are like Naomi and Ruth. Recover sight for the blind and set the oppressed free. We're all like Ruth. All of us are in need of rescue. We can't do it ourselves. We need a kinsman redeemer named Jesus. He's the one who loves us so much he willingly paid the price of our sins with his own death and has made us his bride so that we can enjoy his grace and blessing for eternity. All right, I'm, I'm almost over because right now this is the most important part of the whole sermon. Because in these next few minutes, you'll either be counted as those that went to church today and wasn't that good or bad. Or you are the church today and the Holy Spirit is here and he's about to do something in your life. Because what I want to challenge you about, is it possible that all the ways that your life is not working out the way you planned? Is it possible that all the pain that you have that you need to grieve in your own life, both of those things are not accidents? Both of those are part of a story that has been scripted into you to give you an opportunity and to give you a call to come to your Boaz. See, Jesus said, come to me. All who are weary and burdened. I'll give you rest. Who's weary and burdened? Life's not working out like I planned. I'm hurting and I got pain and I need to grieve it. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So what I'm asking you this morning, is it possible that during the Advent season, when we slow down and we actually acknowledge there is grown in my life that longs for the coming Lord? Because life isn't always working out like I want it to. And I got stuff I'm grieving. That those two things are not the things that we're trying to keep out of our lives. You know, like, like you know, when you lock the door because there's an intruder out there that's banging on the door and going, let me in. And so we keep the door locked against all those things that we don't want to have happen and all that pain we don't want to acknowledge. And is it possible that what's banging on the door is not all the stuff we want to keep out, but actually a savior that's saying, just open the door. And through those two things, life not working out 
and through your grief, I will come into your life and I will give you rest. Then you're going to understand the redeemer, the true redeemer, the one who is greater than Boaz, the one that this whole season is about. So when we celebrate Jesus, we also celebrate it with a longing. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, into our lives. Let's pray. Father, as we kind of respond right now to this call to pause and to acknowledge our need for you, I thank you that you are sufficient to meet that need, that my hunger is only the cry for you to fill me, that my thirst is only my cry that you would give me drink, that my disappointment would only be my cry for your uh, fulfillment and satisfaction, that my ache would be met by your presence. And the true reason for this Advent season would be realized not under a Christmas tree, but in my own heart. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. about to give you the benediction, but before I give you that benediction, um, let me really challenge you about something during this Advent season. You know, when my kids were little, uh, it was funny, whenever I'd put them to bed and we'd turn out the light in, in that silence and darkness, they never got more in touch with their needs than in that moment right there. You know, Daddy, wait, I'm thirsty. What? I just gave you water a minute ago. Or, Daddy, I'm hungry. Can I just have one more thing? Like, or, Daddy, I'm really, really scared. Like, seriously. You know, the list went on and on and on. And is it possible that, that during this season that you would pause just for there to be enough silence and margin in your life for you to realize what your needs are. That when you cry out to your daddy, he doesn't make fun of it like I just did, but would come into your need and meet you in that need. And if, if you get silent, which we're about to do before we leave, and you go, you know, I think I'm good. I, just, I think I'm all right. I don't think I really like, I don't have, I'm not thirsty. I mean, I'm not hungry, all that stuff. It may be that the Lord is saying, good, now let's go. And he's kicking you out of your comfort zone and kicking you into a world that has an ocean of needs to where when you cry out, you're crying out for other people. Do you know last week when we preached on Rahab at our 12 South service, at the five o'clock service, the two front rows of that service were filled with prostitutes, prostitutes who came to hear Midtown preach on how God loves prostitutes a prostitute named Rahab, because there's a woman in our church here. She, she's a woman from a prosperous home, but her heart has been broken for women that are being trafficked. So the last few years, she has made margin in her life to go out and find and help rescue women that are being trafficked and brought into prostitution and bring them into the grace of God. And is it possible that if you say, I think I'm good, God says, great, now that you're good, let's go. Because there's a lot of people out there that need to cry out. And I want you to be my hands and feet. So we're about to pause. And I'm going to ask you in the silence. Where is life not working out? Where are you grieving? Where do you need your Savior, your Boaz, to come and be your Redeemer? And let this be an advent that we cry out to him. So let's pause.
Jesus, I thank you that um, when you came into the world, um, that you didn't come into a perfect story. Because where would we fit? I thank you that you didn't come into a perfect world because we wouldn't belong. But you came into the mess and the mire of stories like ours. And you love broken people. You love people whose stories are not working out and who have experienced pain. And you, you tell those people, us, to come. So now I pray for my friends that, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would bless them with the grace to believe what has been said and that they would be eager to come to you and know what rest is, know what joy is, know what life is, so that as they leave this place, they don't leave as those that went to a church service, but they leave as those that are the church, that we're able to walk into the cries of this world and bring hope. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Hey, one last thing before you leave. Uh, on Christmas Eve, uh, we're having two services in this room here at four o'clock and 5.30. The four o'clock service is for kids and families. Uh, so if you like being around a room full of kids on Christmas Eve, come on at four. Uh, if that's not your jam and you want something a little bit more solemn and quiet, uh, come at 5.30. And the reason I tell you that is because that Christmas Eve service is, is a perfect way to do what I just said. That this service is a night of just celebration of singing songs and reading of the Christ, uh, Christmas story. Um, and it is a really easy way to, for you to bring somebody that may be wondering what is this whole Christmas story about or has no place to go on Christmas Eve. So we've made margin for that. So I would encourage you that if there is somebody in your life that you're like, you know what, I think I'm going to introduce them to my community. And an easy way to do that is through the Christmas Eve service. Remember having it at 4 and 5.30 in this room. God bless you and have a super day.